Polygamy was actually practiced in the state of Utah until 1890. Many of you may not have known that. One day, the famous writer and humorist Mark Twain, he was having a debate with a polygamist, a man who had many, many wives. The polygamist defended his position against every rational and reasonable argument that Twain had. And finally, the polygamist said to Mark Twain, can you just give me one scripture, one Bible passage that specifically denies the man, a man, a right to have multiple wives? And Mark Twain thought for a moment, and then he said, Luke 16, 13, no man can serve two masters. (laughs) Well, now that I got your attention, we're going to continue our study in the book of Revelation. And by the way, if you've missed any of those messages, it's, it's, it's so, so awesome uh, that we have, uh, <laughs> my brain's just not working, Jen, uh, she's been putting them on uh, online. So you can go to the BCC website and you can see all the previous messages on Revelation. So I, I'm so thankful for what Jen is doing. And so we're going to continue our series this morning in the book of Revelation. And I've entitled the message this morning, The turning point, the turning point. Father, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you for the great book of Revelation. I really believe more and more it's just, uh, it's relevancy for our day and time. You can almost pick up the newspaper and see in many ways how Revelation fits into that and Daniel. And so I just ask Holy Spirit that you will come in a powerful way. And that you will give us ears to hear, hearts to receive. I pray for myself that you would just fill me and the words that I speak would be words, your words, words of life, words that bring power, words that bring healing and hope, ultimately, Lord. And so I just thank you for this time, and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. That's the truth. Anyone, even now, who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Last week, we saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Skip, can you put that picture up? Four horsemen of apocalypse starts out with the rider on the white horse. The rider on the white horse is a cheap imitation of Jesus, we saw. It's the Antichrist, and he's got a bow in his hand. He's bent on conquest. He will appear as a man of peace, but he is bent on world conquest. And so he, what he cannot take by peace, he will take by force. And that leads to seal number two. Seal number two is a rider on a fiery red horse, and that is war. So what, like I said, when he can't take what he wants by peace, by force, it leads to war. And you'll see war in various places after the Antichrist is unleashed around the world. And, of course, war leads to seal number three, and that is the black horse, which is famine. And when you have four, you, war, you tend to have famine in various places where you have war. And that will lead ultimately to the opening of seal number four. We saw when Jesus opened seal number four, we saw a pale horse, and that's death. And when you have war and you have famine, you obviously are going to get death. And then we saw that Jesus ripped open the fifth seal on that scroll in Revelation chapter five. And we saw that the fifth seal, when he opens it up, is going to be the martyrdom of believers. And the reason why this is going to occur is because all of a sudden we're at the midpoint of the tribulation at the three and a half year point and the Antichrist is at his height. He's at his full power and he is going to demand that the entire world worship him. He is going to walk into the newly rebuilt Jewish temple and he's going to say that I am your God. 
He's going to say to the Jews, I am your Messiah. And he's going to demand worldwide worship. And the way you are going to worship him, it says in the Bible, is by taking the mark 666. Now, obviously, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you can't do that. And when you don't do that, it's said that there's going to be a great persecution that breaks out. And the Bible calls this the Great Tribulation. Skip, can you put up the map? So here you have one of our charts. You'll see another chart starting next week. But I just want you to see the first seal opens up. That's the white horse. And that's going to be a peace treaty, remember? The Antichrist is going to sign a peace treaty with the nation of Israel and her enemies. He's going to look like, you know, he is an incredible peacemaker. He'll probably win the Nobel Prize for peace. And then you see the second, third, and fourth seals. And they all occur in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. And then you hit the midpoint, and that is when the fifth seal is opened. And that is when, by the way, great persecution and martyrdom starts for the believer. But if you're not, by the way, if, if, if you're a non-believer, that midpoint known as the great tribulation period is actually going to be a time of peace and safety. If you read 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, it says that the world's going to cry out and go peace and safety. There's going to be a time of tremendous prosperity starting at the midpoint. It's going to be building as the Antichrist rises to power. At the midpoint, he has power. And if you've taken his mark, you're going to experience tremendous prosperity. It's going to be a great time. And it says, if you look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, it says the world will be crying out peace and peace and safety. And suddenly it says then, like a thief in the knife, judgment will come upon them. And so now we turn to the sixth seal. The sixth seal is found in the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Revelation in chapter 6. And here's what it has to say. I call this the turning point in the tribulation period. And we're told this starting at verse 12. I watched... As he opened the the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes... The generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand against it? And as I said, this is a great turning point. In the tribulation period, because up until this point, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet have been controlling the earth. And suddenly, God is going to turn the tables on them. He is going to turn the tables on them by unleashing his incredible wrath and judgment upon the earth. Now, I know when I talk about the wrath of God, the judgment of God, that is not a popular topic, especially, you know, in the kind of emotional, let me feel those goosebumps American church. We just tend not to talk about judgment and wrath. It's something, in fact, that kind of troubles us. But it's kind of interesting. 300 years ago, you know, not too far from here, just in fact two and a half hours from here in a place called Northampton, Massachusetts, a pastor by the name of Jonathan Edwards preached a message entitled Sinners 
in the hands of an angry God. And this message literally, you might say, was a lightning rod for what America called the first great awakening. And there Skip has put up a, you know, a, a, a picture of Edward's sermon. Actually, they would print pastor sermons. So you're seeing what it looked like 300 years ago as it was printed in the newspaper. We don't print pastor's messages anymore. But Edward's message was actually preached, or, 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 or it was printed in the newspaper. And I want you to know that, interestingly enough, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God is the most well-known message, the most well-known sermon ever preached on American soil. And Edward started his message by quoting the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32 and verse 35. There, speaking of sinners, their foot shall slide in due time. Jonathan Edwards started out. And then his message had three points. Point number one, unrepentant sinners face a fearful judgment. Point number two, time is short for the unrepentant sinner. God's righteous wrath will come suddenly and it will come unexpectedly. Point number three, it is only God's great grace that extends the day of mercy and provides another opportunity to respond to his gracious call. Edwards preached such a point and he painted such a vivid picture of hell. It is said that people literally spilled in the aisle. They were on their knees and they were crying out for mercy. And from this one sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, it is said that over thousands of people came to Jesus Christ. Because they preached and because he preached on the judgment of God, on the wrath of God, he highlighted then the cross. And it said that the people, as they looked at the vividness of hell and then they looked at the cross in faith, they began to reach out to the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace and the forgiveness that he offers at the cross. Now, as I said a few moments ago, we here in America struggle with judgment. In fact, very often, how often have you heard, literally, a message on judgment? How often have you heard a message in the American pulpit on the wrath of God? I dare say you probably have not heard it at all. And that's why we struggle with it. But the Bible makes it clear, by the way, that this is part of the character of God. This is part of his very nature. And it is true that God is love, but it is also equally true. That God is just. And these two ideas are not contradictory. God's justice demands. God's justice demands that he hates sin. That he hate our selfish acts that we do. But I want you to know that his love compelled him. His love compelled him to take that judgment. To take that sin on the cross so that you and I could live. So someone asked you. How can a loving God judge? My question is this and my response is this. How could a loving God not judge? You see, love demands that justice be satisfied. True love demands that justice always be satisfied. Many years ago, there was a playlet entitled The Long Silence. And in that playlet, there was a scene of the great white throne judgment. Skip, can you put it up? At the end of time, Billions of people were scattered in a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them. But some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering, snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endure terror. 
beatings, torture, and death. In another group, a black boy lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no other crime than just being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against, the God, against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in this world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light. Where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most. A Jew, a black, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a thalidomide child. In the center of the plain, they consulted with one another. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind as he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured then. At last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. And then let him die. Let him die so there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witness to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved, for suddenly they all knew God had already served the sentence. You see, this describes Jesus Christ. Do you understand that Jesus Christ came 2,000 years ago and he put on human skin? God put on human skin. And there, as the Lamb of God, as a sacrificial Lamb of God, he endured everything that these people demanded and that we demand of him. And you know why he did it? Do you know why Jesus did it? Because he loved you. wanted us all to live. Skip, can you put that picture up? That's why he did it. Because of love. A man fell into a pit and couldn't get himself out. A subjective person came along and said, I feel for you down there. An objective person came along and said, it's logical that someone would fall down there. A Christian scientist came along and said, you only think that you're in a pit. A Pharisee said only bad people fall into pits. A mathematician calculated how the man fell into the pit. A news reporter wanted the exclusive story on his fall into the pit. A legalistic Christian said, you deserve that pit. Confucius said, if you had listened to me, you wouldn't be in that pit. Buddha said, your pit is only a state of mind. And a realist said, that is a pit. A self-pitying person said, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. A charismatic from the faith movement said, just confess it and you will not be in the pit any longer. An optimist said things could be worse. A pessimist said things will get worse. But Jesus, seeing the man, took him by the hand 
And in his love, he lifted him out of the pit. And I want you to know this morning, there's no pit so deep that the love of God cannot reach down and pull you out of that pit. And so I pray, even now, that faith is moving. That faith is moving in your heart. I don't know where you are, and I don't know what pit you're in, but the love of God, the love of Jesus Christ can pull you out of that pit. I want you to know, though, there's a day coming, and I believe that day is nearer than many of us think. And there's a day that Jesus Christ is going to come back to planet Earth, and it's said that he's going to have judgment in his hands. He's going to have wrath on his lips. And Jesus will say, because you have rejected me and my sacrifice, you have spoken. With your life, with your actions, you have made your decision. And now you will experience the full consequences of that decision. You have sentenced yourself. And I'm sorry to say, and I'm so sad to say, far too many people are going to hear Jesus say that. And you don't need to hear Jesus say that. You don't need to do that. Well, the picture is much brighter, much brighter for the believer. You know, when the sixth seal is opened up, it says that there are terrifying things that occur. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be eerie signs in the heavens. It says that men and women, their knees are going to begin quaking. And I want you to watch how Jesus describes the opening of the sixth seal and what we call the uh, Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. If you have your Bibles, you can earn Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24, and here's how Jesus describes the opening of the sixth seal that I read in Revelation 6. Listen to this. It says in verse 29, immediately after the stress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Now watch this. At that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of the heavens to the other. We are told that at this transition point, at the sixth seal, suddenly there's going to be the sign of the Son of Man. And people have wondered, what is the sign of the Son of Man? I'll tell you what the sign of the Son of Man is, because the context says it. Suddenly, can you imagine, Jesus is going to appear visible all over planet earth and he is going to and the believers who are being martyred who are being killed by the antichrist they're going to see this visible jesus all over the earth and they're going to cry out with joy and triumph that jesus has come back and they are going to be raptured i believe what you see there is the rapture of the believer but equally so can you imagine if you're not a believer can you imagine seeing the resurrected Christ the glorified Christ and you're not a believer and the terror struck in your heart so on the one moment he's going to bring tremendous joy and the sign on the other hand will bring tremendous fear for the non-believer the apostle Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Skip, can you put that up? He says this. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come, Death, oh, death! has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Can you imagine? There you are. 
You're at the fifth seal. You're experiencing martyrdom. You're seeing death all around you. Suddenly, Jesus, the sign appears in the great sky. And you go from mortality to immortality. You are about to perish, and you receive a body that shall never perish again. You know, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9, a great, great promise is given to the believers. It says this, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, his wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Skip, can you put that chart up again? You see, the first five seals, seals 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, are basically evil. Evil that is caused by the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan. And I just want you to know, there's nowhere in Scripture that says that the believer is exempt from that. We are not exempt from that. But you know what we are exempt from? We are exempt from God's wrath. We are exempt from God's judgment. You know why? Because we just saw it. Jesus paid the price for that. And at the sixth seal, you have the transition point occurring. At the sixth seal, the believers, they see Jesus. The entire world sees Jesus, and they are raptured out. They are taken out. But for the unbeliever, they see Jesus as a terrifying scene because now the wrath of the Lamb is coming. And at the seventh seal, you have what's called the day of the Lord begins. That is the time of God's great judgment on the earth. And we'll look at that next week. But when God unleashes, by the way, his judgments, and what we call the trumpet judgment and the bold judgments, he is going to begin to take back the earth from Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet, all of the rebellious people, he's going to take it back, starting with the seventh seal. Now, Interestingly enough, do you know what follows Revelation chapter 6? Revelation chapter 7. Very good. Now, no, a lot of people think I'm just kind of trying to be a smart aleck about this. But, you know, it's interesting. I want you to know that the book of Revelation is actually chronological. And a lot of people don't know what to do with Revelation chapter 7. They kind of say, well, you know, it's a parenthesis. It's not a parenthesis. It actually continues the story. Watch this. So if you have your Bibles, look with me, Revelation chapter 7, and we're told this. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on the tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having a seal of the living God. The seal means it's protection. It's the authority of God on these 144,000 that we're going to see. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels, who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from the tribe of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Nephalti, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. And from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed for a total of 144,000. And people have wondered, who are these 144,000? You know who these 144,000 are? They're Jews. And if you read Revelation 14... They're males. They're virgins. They're celibate. 
And the big question is, why in the world are these 144,000 being sealed by God? And you know what the answer is? They represent God's presence on earth. There's a spiritual axiom. God always has a representation. He always has a remnant. Do you realize that just what's happened? If we just looked at it. With the sixth seal comes the rapture of all the believers. Do you know for a moment there's going to be no presence? All of a sudden, all you have on planet Earth for a moment is non-believers. But God doesn't do that. He always leaves a presence on the earth. And he's going to seal these 144,000. They become his presence on planet Earth. They become his remnant. Now, I just want to speak to you just for a second here. Do you realize why you're here? I mean, it changes your life radically when you realize why you're placed here and left here on this planet as a believer. So often I see people struggling. Why am I here? I don't like my job. I don't like my family. (laughs) I don't like my neighborhood. And see, it's not about any of that. Do you realize that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are left here as the remnant. You are God's presence. I hear people say, you know, pastor, it's a horrible, horrible, I just hate my workplace. There's not a Christian in the entire place. And I said, wow, that's awesome. Do you realize God had you there? Because you're his presence there. See, your life radically changes when you realize God chose you to be the... I can't... Don't ask me why. I think it's mind-boggling that the God of the universe would leave it up to us to be his presence to unbelievers. And that's why you're there. And do you realize that these 144,000... You know what they are? They're little Jewish Billy Grahams running around. No. Can, can, can you imagine how disturbing they're going to be? These 144,000 are going to be running around the earth. And in particular, they're going to be calling out to the Jews. And I believe these 144,000 are going to be calling the Jews back to their homeland. And you say, why is that? I'll tell you why. Look with me at Romans chapter 11. Here's why. This is awesome. It says this in verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, that's Christians, so that you may not be conceited. Now watch this. Israel, the Jews have experienced a hardening in part. So in other words, the Jews, by and large, are not believers. Now watch this. Until the full number of the Gentiles come in. Who are the Gentiles? It's us. He's speaking about the church. So he says that the Jews, for the most part, have a hardening. They have a hardening, spiritual hardening of the arteries. They have a veil over their eyes. They cannot see. And for the most part, do you realize that the Jews are not believers? If you go to Israel... 90% of them are either atheistic or agnostic. 90% of them. But it says this, when the full number of the Gentiles has come in, have you ever thought maybe you're the last Gentile here? Maybe you're holding up the rapture. No, it's an interesting thought. It says when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, the rapture occurs, and then God finishes his plan. That's going to happen at the sixth seal. At the sixth seal, we're raptured. Basically, the last Gentile comes in, and now God turns to the Jews, and he finishes his plan with the Jews in those 144,000. Now, watch what it says is going to happen here. This is awesome, because you've already seen it happen before your eyes. The Jews are already being called back. It started in 1948. It says this, and so all Israel, watch this, all Israel will be saved. All Jews will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them. I will take away their sin. Can you believe it? After we're raptured out, 
God turns to the Jews. He's calling them back to their homeland, to the promised land. And there's going to be a tremendous revival. It says in the Old Testament that they will realize the one whom they appear. They will realize it's Jesus himself. And there's going to be a massive revival there in Israel. What an incredible, incredible sight that's going to be. Now watch this. Here's how I finish. Watch what else it says, though, in Revelation chapter 7. Watch what's happening in heaven now. Here's how we conclude. Verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe, people and language, standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. Who in the world are these people? I mean, there's multitudes and multitudes and multitudes. And he says they were wearing white robes. That speaks of righteousness and purity. And they were holding palm branches in their hands. That speaks of victory. Watch this. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You know who that multitude is? That multitude is those in Revelation chapter 6 that had just been raptured. And there's multitudes and there's millions and millions. And can you imagine being part of that? Millions and millions. Suddenly, and the way you know it's the rapture, if if you look in Revelation chapter 6, it talked about in, in the fifth seal, the souls under the altar, they had no body. Suddenly here, if you notice in Revelation 7, they have a hand. They're holding palm branches. See, the rapture's occurred. I am absolutely convinced that what you're seeing right there is you see almost the baton passing. So you have the believers leaving, the sealing of the 144,000, the presence on earth, and then you see all the believers who have ever lived rejoicing, just rejoicing in the salvation and what the Lamb has done. Can you imagine what it would be like to suddenly be taken out of that mess and being with the Lord Jesus Christ? What an incredible celebration that's going to be. Look what it says at the end here in Revelation 7. It says, verse 15, Therefore, They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Can you imagine? He's going to spread his tent over us. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And I love this. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's for us, believers. I don't know what you're going through now. I want you to know, though, whatever lives you've heard from people and, and, and from preachers, God never said you're going to have fun in this life. That's our hope. Do you understand that? That's our hope. And it's sure. It's going to happen. No, it's going to happen. My hope isn't here. I don't plan that, hey, I'm going to have a rose garden. And I'm going to be sipping, you know, mint tulip somewhere poolside. It doesn't say that. My hope is I am waiting. One day Jesus is going to appear. And he's going to call me up. And he's going to call you up if you're a believer. That is our incredible hope. And he's going to wipe away every tear. And we have no, if you think you know what joy, we have no idea. The joy that we're going to experience is going to be absolutely astounding. So I say because of that hope, now quit holding back. Quit holding back. Quit. We lay our lives down now. Quit holding back. There's nothing to hold back for. Give them 100%. I'm challenging you. I'm challenging myself. Give the lamb 100% now. Because your hope, your hope is incredible. And my hope is incredible. God bless you. Father, 
I pray as we walk out of here. I know there are people here struggling. I know there are people that have just lost loved ones even this week. And it hurts. We experience all kinds of injustice and it hurts. We experience all kinds of physical trauma and it hurts. But we need to write one word over it. You say temporary. It's temporary. Because what awaits, you say, for each believer is an incredible joy and glory that none of us can imagine. And I pray if there's anyone here this morning who has never experienced the blood of the Lamb, the incredible cleansing blood of Jesus Christ that can bring forgiveness and wholeness. Even now, Holy Spirit, they'll respond to that knocking on the door. Have your way now, Holy Spirit, as we sing this final song, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.